Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Leese here with my co-host, Richard Harris. And today we welcome Claire Morris to the show, VP of Operations at Homeward. We're excited to talk to her. Claire, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Yeah. So tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now real quick in, in, your, in your role. Um, VP of Ops, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people and different companies. So what does it mean for you and your role with, with Homeward right now? Yeah, ops definitely means something different and has at every company I've worked at so far. Um, so um, at Homeward, what, what it really entails is um, all operational process and strategies centralized in the business as it relates to um, funnel operations. So everything from top of funnel down to um, getting our customers on board and through our entire transaction with a heavy focus specifically on the customer ex experience part of the transaction. So I'm going to, I'm going to pause right there. That's a lot of good buzzwords. That sounds really good in a job description. <laughs> can you give me, can you give us and, and the, and the listeners like three use cases? Here's what that means here, right? Yeah. Funnel operations, top of funnel customer journey. Like we get it, but like what are three things that, that'll resonate or maybe three things you discovered that needed to really be fixed just so we have a greater context. For sure. So a few of the actual focus areas that my role has, um, managing the customer experience team, these are the, the agents that are basically on the phone with our customers, guiding them end to end through the customer life cycle. So what that means is they're you know, explaining to them how our process works. They're getting them under contract on their new home. They're actually consulting with their real estate agents and then they're managing them through two different closes. The close when Homeward buys the home and when, um, when the customer buys the home back from us. So there's a ton of uh, sales points and milestones throughout their, uh, throughout their life cycle, but there's also a ton of operational and logistics that they're having to manage. Get yeah, the right- Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. I, don't, I, don't, I don't like hearing tons of operationals and logistics. Scott's over here smiling. Like, <laughs> go for it, Richard. I, I work with Claire for so many years, I know exactly where Richard's going. Um, but I actually maybe even pause for a second. Maybe explain a little bit about what your organization does, because you talked about buying the home and then someone else buying the home. So I think giving, again, just more context, I think will help understand the process better. Yeah, I think so. So Homeward's key mission is to help home buyers buy their next home before they sell the one that they're in. And the way that we do that is we um, empower them with a cash offer where after we've you know financially approved them, Homeward will buy their next home for them. They get to move in right away, begin renting from us during that time while they you know, prep their home for listing at its full market value potential. So they can get, you know, every last dollar out of that sale that they possibly can. When they sell that old home, they then buy the new home back from us, but they've already been living in it. So we um, really remove all of the stress of where am I going once I sell my home? Got so you're, 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 you're having to do, this is interesting. You're having to do so much more selling almost than, <clears throat> than you had to do before. Um, Walk, walk everybody through and walk us through like your kind of origin story. You know, there's a funny story about how Claire and I met for the first, for the first time, but talk, talk to everybody about how you, how you started because you started as a customer service rep. Right? Yeah. Worked your oh, way yeah. through all these different roles. So kind of walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. You know, my, with, with a, 
a very proud music degree from UT. I was a little lost in what I was going to do in my career. And so, um, like most people who end up in sales. Yeah, exactly. So, um, what I knew is that I had a big personality and that I, I liked to be creative and problem solve. And so I thought, okay, startups are for me and they're everywhere in Austin. So, um, really where I started was in customer service, um, at main street hub where I met Scott and, um, that was a great experience, but definitely like a thrown into the deep ocean, deep, deep end of the ocean kind of experience about 60 days in, um, our CEOs were fundraising and needed somebody to run the team. And they came to me and said like, Hey, you're good at your job. Why don't you manage everybody else and uh, move me into a team lead position? So really quickly I had to figure out how to, um, enabled teams. And then that's where I kind of found my love for both customer success and operations. It was about enabling teams and um, creating repeatable processes. Um, so did that for a while there, uh, moved into operations where I was supporting sales as well. And then um, followed you, Scott, to Outbound Engine, um, which was an awesome move. was there for about four and a half years. And during that time, it was so fun. I got to build a centralized operations department, meaning sales ops, customer success ops, finance ops, billing ops, everything sat centrally in the business versus rolling up into their different departments. And we got to have this like hub of, um, you know, process experts and vendor managers and um, people obsessed with automation and, and empowering the teams that they supported. And um, I think we did a pretty good job there at that. So that was really fun. And then um, moved from uh, Outbound Engine to Shipping Easy, where I actually moved back into a full-time dedicated customer success role as VP of CS there. And that was um, a brand new experience for me because the company had already been acquired. It was definitely a larger team that I was starting with. Um, than I had before. And so it was really about inheriting something that was already built and figuring out how do you untangle and um, put back together something that you feel like is faster and stronger and better, um, which is a lot harder than I think starting from scratch. Um, and then most recently came to, to Homeward where I'm now at the earliest stage I've ever been at, you know, joined before we were even at 10 employees and where no processes existed at all. So I'm getting to kind of build it with my own vision, but we're, we're certainly building the plane in the air. So, so you've, one of the things that uh, I find interesting and in that <clears throat> you've, you've had to interface and, and talk to so many different departments, right? You've had to work with sales and CS and finance and all these things. Like what advice would you give, um, you know, other sales executives, uh, VPs or operations folks, what advice would you give them in, in how to best manage those different relationships and, and personality types, right? Because, mm. you know, the, the head of finance is a different personality probably than I do, right? Yeah. So what, what advice do you have there? Yeah, I think, I think it really all comes back to alignment on what you're what you're trying to achieve where the only place I've seen this um, or the only times I've seen this done really well is when the different people at the table in the room agree first and foremost, before the conversation, we're trying to put X number of dollars on the board. Right. And these are our, you know, constraints that we're going to operate under. And we agree about those. Okay. Now we can really duke it out about how we're going to get from A to B. You know, when you have, it's, it's interesting in my role today, I, 
I carry a sales quota with my team. Um, and not just in terms of number, but in terms of revenue and attachment, and there's all these elements to it. And so I desperately want to get every deal on the board with as many dollars attached to it as possible. Um, and sometimes what that means is we need to make concessions for our customers, um, or we need to get creative and finance operations because we're a financial product is a huge part of, um, of the conversation. And there is this very natural tension between finance and customer experience on a daily basis where I'm negotiating about what can we do to make this deal happen. And it's what does fun. finance do to pause you? Like, I want to, I want to hear stories like without, you know, blaming people. Yeah. Well, you know, Finance's charter is protect the unit, right? Protect the value of our unit in our unit economics and make sure that we have a, a business that when it scales is going to be margin positive. And that's like a good thing that I'm super on board with. But if our customers feel friction in the process around, for example, let's say like the rent, how do we still achieve positive unit economics, but make that a no friction process so that that doesn't even have to come up as a, as an objection. It's something that we actually grease right along for our customers. So here's, I want to, I'm going to interject on this one a little bit because I see this a lot, particularly at this stage, right? You're at that early growth stage. Um, I don't know where you are in terms of funding, but, sometimes people get confused that every dollar counts is different than every customer counts and their deals and feel free to, you know, I, this is my new favorite hashtag, which is blame Richard, but yeah. feel free to blame Richard that there are deals you have to make in your first two or so years of a new startup that you would never ever make with a rational brain simply so that you can tell that story, not the story of the money behind it, but more about, Hey, we're helping this many customers get in. Yeah, that or, that story in and of itself, Richard, is the story that we all have to tell the the VPs of finance. <laughs> you just you just gave the story, right? So it's kind of like you have to, and you have to push hard. That look, you can protect the dollars, but there's not going to be anything here to protect if I don't have five case studies of real humans really renting our house who will then go and evangelize that to the general public because that's worth way more right now. That's worth way more than, uh, you know, you lose a little bit of money or you just break even on those deals. So feel free to hashtag blame Richard on that one. Cause that's a really important one um, for them. Unless you've already done that. Maybe you already know that. Maybe it's hashtag blame Claire because yeah. a lot of bullshit. I know that about Claire. <laughs> it's definitely an active conversation that we're having. And it's, you know, it's important not just from getting the customer stories, um, but the, the like learnings that we get, there are assumptions that we can make left and right. But until we actually manage this use case and figure out like, okay, where are our boundaries really? Um, we don't, we don't know what parameters we want to put in place to scale. And so, that's where Claire's genius, because I don't think that way. I'm not sitting here going, Oh, wait a minute we can redefine or better understand the process in addition to the customer story. Like I'm a sales minded person, right? Like, and, and I think that's tremendous value because that's a second thing that's of equal value to the customer story, if not more, because you have to line your operations. This is an area where, where, you know, having the operational background that, that you have Claire, as well as the early customer service, background. I, I think it, it, it has given you the ability to think differently right away than Richard says that he does or, or, or even I do, right? Um, so 
talk to us a little bit about that. How, how do you how do you feel like these the service role and the ops role where you didn't carry a quota? How do you think that those roles prepared you now to uh, to carry a quota and and, and manage that? And, and how much different is it? Yeah, um, that's interesting to reflect on because you know, what I, what I spent a lot of time in previous roles doing was like pounding my fist on the table, championing that operations as an early investment matters. And it's one of the key things that you will do to scale. And Scott, you and I got on board with that together early on. And, you know, we were able to evangelize for like, we need another hire in this ops department. We need to run a project against this. We need to care about our, you know, data integrity, we need to care about our tech stack. Like all of these things actually matter, even though they might feel like nice to haves to some people, they are what will enable us to scale. And the sooner we get them in there, the better. I'm gonna pause you, because this is is the part I've really been interested in hearing. One, I do, before we get off this conversation, I I do want to hear one time where you argued with Scott and you won, Um, (laughs) because I think that's really important to, and, and not because you guys know each other and we know each other and you've been to surf and sail. Like that's all that's, we've, that's never, what makes ar- we've never argued Richard. Yeah. Never, never you, know, you know what Riley asked me the other day, Scott, my 11 year old, he said, Hey daddy, have you ever won an argument with mama? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> if Claire and I ever argued, I definitely did not win the argument. <laughs> so, but I, but I want to, I want to dive in because you guys do have a personal relationship where you can really talk about this. So how did that, how did, and I know Scott, I know both of you well enough that you were both probably like, oh my God, it's so great to have a partner who gets it, right? Like I know that there's that piece between the two of you, but how did you guys either recognize in each other that, wow, this person gets it and we're probably going to agree 80% of the time. What were the things in Scott that you saw Claire? Scott, what were the things that you saw in Claire that were like, okay, you know, I can, well, I'll, Not, I'll go. didn't trust her, but you can trust yeah. her more. I'll, I'll go. I'll go first. So, and I'll tell the story, kind of how Claire and I met. So, I was <clears throat> living in San Francisco still, but we were about to relocate the company to Austin. And um, this lady shows up in San Francisco, just graduated. And it's like, hey, I'm gonna. Shows up in our office in San Francisco. It's like I'm gonna be working for you guys out in uh, in Austin. It was Claire. I'm like, oh, did, did we fly you out here or something? She's like, no, I just came out to, you know, visit and like meet the team a little bit. And I just remember thinking, like, holy shit! Like, look at the initiative on this this girl. She like just graduated, and she just struck me as like super positive, super confident. And there was just something about her. And, and I remember going to Matt and Andrew, the co-founders, and saying, "There, what did you hire Claire for? And they're like, oh, she's, you know, the frontline customer service rep or something like that. And I'm like, she is not going to be a customer service rep for very long. Like, she's a star in the making. And I, I just, I knew it, like, right away. So, and it was just the way that she carried her herself. And so it, it was just awesome now to to see her grow to so claire did you, today. did you feel that level of awesomeness when you showed up or were you like oh my god what am i walking in it was like what is this weirdo <laughs> right like did were you like i need to fake it till i make it which i think we've all done at some point but i know you well enough to know your confidence level too but i also know sometimes you know like all of us we all get a little bit of imposter syndrome like where was your head at that time in your life yeah i think i didn't 
I think I didn't know all of the challenges I was about to face. So I didn't have the imposter syndrome quite yet that would inevitably set in just like it does for everybody. At that point, I was, you know, it, it was a world of possibilities. And I knew, I knew what I was good at, which was relationship building. And that's always been something I've, <clears throat> you know. I think that's great. I think that's a, I, I love what you just said, which is, and I think we all do that is like, before we know what the problems are, we don't even think, we're like, whatever problem comes up, I'll handle. And then all of a sudden we start to handle problems and we actually lose confidence in our ability to handle problems. That's we exactly. get nervous, we get scared. And that's where that imposter syndrome sits in. And I, I wasn't expecting to talk about it, but I think that that's a really good takeaway from this is that you almost have to, you almost have to come in sort of very bright eyed, bushy tailed and assume there's really no major problem because you'll just figure it out. Right. Like, oh, yeah. And, and I that's, mean, that's what you got to do to pull yourself out of your imposter syndrome sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think my like sheer delusion about my like unlimited potential <laughs> was a lot of what carried me, you know, in the early, early stages of my career. Like I, I had no reason to think I couldn't do something and I had really great champions, truly like Scott that, um, that reinforced that for me. And so I moved really quickly through some of these like early stages of my career, which was amazing. And, um, you know, I'm so grateful for that and got a lot of momentum because of that. So let me, let me ask, I'm going to pull back to the shades on the two of you a little bit too. Can you guys talk about a time where you've worked together and you had to strategize to get something done through your C, your C-level executives, through your finance department, where it's like, okay, Scott, you go be the bad cop. Claire, I'm going to be, Claire's going to be the good cop or vice versa. Like, how do the two of you, how did those two departments, uh, look at Scott, he's all excited about this. He wants no, to I'm just it. thinking, first of all, I was always the bad cop. Well, this is, I know that. I, I, I Believe me, I'm well aware. Um, <laughs> you still are, my friend. You still are, right? Yeah. Um, I think what it, someone told us that, that the definition between the two of us is that Scott's like, fuck you, and Richard's like, let's be friends. So... Um, <laughs> But 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 think about that from as you give advice to other people, as people who are listening and they're like, oh, you know, you know, I do get along with my ops person or my head of customer success, or and we need to go get this other platform to help us, right? Maybe you need the Gainsight platform, maybe you need Outreach or Sales Loft, or maybe you need Gong or Chorus, or maybe you need something that's going to benefit the org. But you got a finance person or a C level founder who's like, well, why do we do like can't you just do this? Like can't you just sit and listen to people or whatever it is? Like, how did you guys work together to figure that stuff out? Like what advice, like what are three things you could do? You could give to people like, Hey, before you go do this, strategize this way. I mean, I've got one um, for sure. So, you know, pretty early on, I recognized that what comes with being sales ops and being the person to like enforce process and enforce um, regulation in the sales team, it, comes with people feeling like you can be the enemy and like you're, you're constricting their ability to grow, which isn't the case at all. And so, you know, we, my, my team was really self-aware about that early on. We, we like jokingly called ourselves cops instead of ops because it was just like this brand that we were constantly having to manage and the way that we did it well. And Scott, I mean, you can speak to this too, is it was like, well, how do we, how do we ensure that the entire sales department knows that our number one goal is the same as theirs, which is like put deals on the board, 
get paid. And we want to make sure that that happens for them. So we participated in as many meetings as we possibly could. We sat on the floor with them every single day. We had like required, um, amount of time that you had to be sitting in like the, on the sales floor, like with the reps relationship building was a huge part of it. And it was really always going to be about relationship building. What do you mean? With the sales reps themselves, it's it's not just a you sit and partner with you know the VP of sales to roll out regulation and process or a new tool here and so there. So what would you what would you or your team do if you sat with a sales rep? Like what would that mean? The some of the strategic elements of sales management outside of like that kind of magic. I can get on the phone and help a rep understand how to close this deal. Some of those things that Scott, you know, was always beating a drum about, like, I need you guys to be managing their pipelines. I need you guys to be checking their metrics and talking with them about this all the time. We recognized that it was hard for managers to prioritize those activities. So we did it with them. We sat there with them and looked at their reps pipelines and said, what do you think the takeaways are? Here are my takeaways. What's our plan for this individual rep? Great. Let's go deliver it together. So it was this partnership at every level of um, the sales organization. So the reps, you know, they got, um, they got advice and consultation from us, people that really thrive with metrics and numbers um, and helped translate it for them. If you do so what this, kind of advice would you give them? Oh, it was, you know, anything from, hey, if you can improve this conversion in your sales process by this percent, here's what that could look like for you in terms of a commission change. And here's how, here are the levers you can pull, the trainings you can go to, the things you can try to improve that percentage. So it was all about decoding and demystifying like between your first dial and your dollar that you get in your bank account from it, what are, what are my options? What are the levers I can pull? And how can I tell which ones I need to be tugging at? Got it. Scott, what's your, what's your take on this? Or are you just gonna go, Claire's right? <laughs> as usual, I should say, as usual. No, you know, I, I don't know how other people run their sales orgs, but um, <clears throat> I, I, I had all my sales ops teams just be really, really involved, you know? Um, I didn't want, I didn't want them just banging away on Salesforce or, or reports or spreadsheets like in, in the other room, you know? I wanted them on the floor and active and, and like Claire said, helping people manage the pipeline, you know, especially reps who are early in their career. I mean, come on, they don't know how to manage a pipeline the right way. You know, things slip through the cracks. They've got things that they haven't called in, you know, 120 days that had a contract sent out to them or whatever, right? And, and so, you know, I don't expect all of my sales managers to be experts at all this operational stuff. And so, like she said, the partnership between the two was really important. You know, a sales manager, you know, one particular sales manager might be really good at just managing the personality of their, of their reps, right. And, and their, and their mindset and, and fixing their, you know, confidence level and, and working on the tonality of their pitch and these kind of things. Um, but they might lack some skills in the operational side of things. Well, okay, well that's where Claire and her team, you know, would come in and, and help. Um, and as far as like, dealing with executives and getting things, you know, across the line, it, it's, it's the ability to tell the story in a more comprehensive way, right? Like I'm, 
I'm very passionate and get like very emotional. Like once I, once I know we need something, right? Like I'm going to explain, this is why we need it. This is what it's going to do. It's going to be super powerful. Right. And, and I am always thinking like, Oh, you hired me to make these decisions. Like, just let me make the decision and get out of my way. Newsflash. It's not like that. I get told no all the time. And so then I go back to Claire and I'm like, I need you to help me to tell this story in a, in a more one plus one equals two way. So these bean counter finance people can understand my point from a different angle. Right. And so that's just one kind of, dynamic of how the the partnership worked together that's great i mean that that's what i'm looking for right and and it's interesting because i don't there are very few organizations where ops gets to engage with sales in such a way that sales might not feel they're being micromanaged by another department right and you guys sort of cracked the code on that a little bit and I'm, i am curious as as you did this and i know you know scott you know for everything you've done, you know, you, you had the benefit of having Claire earlier in your, well, you had one or two gigs where you didn't have an ops person. And finally you had one and you were just like able to unleash the ops potential, right. In the sales organization. And you found this great partner in Claire. What was it like? Do you think from your sales team that, wait a minute, why is Claire's team sitting here telling me how to close a deal? Right. Cause there's that ego of sales of like, you know, you don't know what you're doing kind of stuff. Right. How did, how did y'all bridge that gap or Scott? Was it just because from the top down you said, look, you guys don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. Listen to Claire. Like, how did that work? No, I like, let, let's let Claire answer that question. I think, I think Scott and I had a really good understanding and we, I mean, it was, there, there was always this tension between uh, sales and operations, but Scott and I really prioritized, like make that a healthy tension, make that a productive tension and don't let it, you know, derail what we're, both trying to do here, which I think is. Um, sorry. Hey, that's life. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I was, I was getting close. Okay. Um, so Scott and I really prioritized making sure that the tension between ops and sales was going to be a productive one, a healthy one, and not a um, a destructive one that derailed what we were both trying to do, which was hit revenue goals. And so um, I drew a big you know, thick black line with my team that was like, you were never to coach uh, any reps or managers on what to say. That is not what we are the experts in. The, the messaging, the finesse of delivering a script, like none of that is what we're the experts in. We focused a lot on sales enablement. So, okay, once you sales leadership have determined how you want to do that. How do we help codify that and turn it into something that can be repeatable? How do we help build training programs for you to deliver that message easily? And how do you measure that it's being um, done well? That's where we stepped in to help. But there was, there was always this like real clarity about it is not our job to help figure out what to say and how to convert the deal. What if you but heard that though? Let's, let's say you heard that. Let's say you're sitting there and granted, yeah. There's a difference between Claire sitting there and probably being just based on experience and title and clout within the org to give some coaching. But let's say you did see or hear something. Did you then sort of have to back channel that to the, to the appropriate manager or to Scott to say, Hey Scott, look, we heard this, you know, this is before gone in chorus, right? We heard this, we think there's an opportunity, but we don't want to, we don't want to cause more friction and we're really wanting to be supportive. What would no, you do? I mean, Claire might hear from one of her people, 
and and one of her people would say hey this you know rep kind of sounded funky on the phone or something like that and then she would come say something to me and i'd be like oh crap right so time for us to go to go fix that you know so it was a to me it wasn't it wasn't threatening it was welcomed like mm -hmm. I, nice work okay you just figured something out that we're deficient in like i need to go we need to go fix that now mm -hmm. um and and you know I, maybe that maybe that's the maybe that's the dynamic like maybe maybe there's sales leaders or managers out there who would be super threatened by you know the the head of sales ops presenting feedback from one of her team members on on somebody and what they're saying on the phone um i don't feel threatened by that at all i just think we're, hey we're all just trying to close deals i could really care less how we close the deal or even who closes the deal let's just get it right um so let me I, i'm going to ask for another dynamic in the relationship because and again it's because i know you too scott to what scott just said look let's just get the deal let's close the deal don't worry about it claire's like whoa hold your horses we need to work around this process a little bit right how did the two of you manage that and more importantly claire how what advice do you give to ops people who need to to manage me yeah, yeah. I, what, that's good what, what advice do you give the head of operations to manage yeah. the, the vp of sales well i think i don't know i think it's about striking a balance because truly like the number of times that scott had to say like hey claire i hear you but like is this really going to make the difference or is this just gonna you know shut down our ability to close deals like and is that really what you want like i had to get reality checked too um you know sometimes and so it's about having this openness to like hear the feedback and regularly check in on like are we still working towards the same goal here and like yeah but that's not what i want to hear don't give me this kumbaya <laughs> it's, it's true though and i think you don't work for scott anymore you don't work for him he doesn't really affect your paycheck right Right. But I do think, I, I think it's an important message though for ops people out there sure. to hear, like, don't power trip. Like you've got, you were there to serve the revenue of the business. But how do you stop a guy? And, and Scott is not a power trip guy. Like I get, I, I know Scott well enough, but like any sales leader, we can't all be, get on a power trip train for a few minutes. Yeah. Right. How do you manage that personality? How do you try to coach them to wait, take a deep breath, Scott, take a deep breath, Mrs. VP of sales. Like I, I'm on your side here. Yeah. Here's yeah, I don't, I'm not, like, I don't know if telling Scott to take a deep breath would have ever worked for me, but <laughs> <laughs> what, what we did, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but like anytime that there was something that I really disagreed with Scott about and needed him to hear me, it had to be a one-on-one, -on -one, just the two of us in a room where we leveled. And I would just present to him like, Hey, here's why I'm fired up about this. Here's why I'm being a dog with a bone about this. And I won't let this one go. You know, this is what I think the fallout is. This is what I think the opportunity is. Let me present it in a way where you understand, you know, the business impact. But then it was always about our human connection and our relationship where I was like, I had to level with him and be like, Scott, you know, I wouldn't be harping on this so much if it didn't really matter. Like, do you trust Scott, me? How would you hear that? Like, like, what was the moment where you're like, wait a minute, okay, I got to stop what I'm doing. I got to check myself and really, and I know over time it probably got easier, right? Like in any relationship, but how did you check yourself as a, as a, as a head of sales who's always focused on hitting the number? It's look, it's December the what 12th today. And now Claire's coming in here to talk to you about some operational bullshit that you're like, I just need to get the number by the end of the quarter. Like, how would you check yourself? Well, I mean, I, I never really, I never really thought of it as, operational bullshit i thought i thought of it as 
her, her trying to find ways to help my team and I uh, perform better. And a lot of the times it was things that I thought might slow us down. Um, they might be good overall for the business. And I'm trying to balance like overall for the business versus what I need right now and what I think my people need right now. Um, but you know, I think she didn't mention this cause she's being kind, but like one of the things you, you need to do when you're in sales ops is you probably got to manage the emotions of the head of sales. Right. And you know, like, like anybody, you know, who, who's in my role, probably like we go up and we go down based on, on how well we're doing. And so, you know, I think number one, you got to get really good at, at, if you know the person you're working with, you get good at reading their emotions and their, and their state of mind. So like Claire probably could walk past my, my desk and know, nope, not going to talk to Scott right now. Going to wait, you know, an hour or something when he's looks like he's a little happier. Right. <clears throat> and she said it herself. Number two is like, don't have that conversation with me, you know, on the floor in front of 200 people or in front of other managers or whatever, um, you know, pull, pull it in, in a private way. And, and then number three, like, just sit down and be real. And, you know, she would sit there and say, Scott, you're pushing back, but you gotta, you gotta listen. And like, there's just a certain way that she would speak to me. I was like, you know, this is human to human situation right here. Like, put away my, you know, bias or my initial, you know, disagreement and like, you know, just, just really level. And, you know, there's one particular moment where, um, I remember one time where I specifically like upset her and I remember her coming back to me and, and being, you know, pretty emotional and like upset and was like, did you make her cry? Oh, he did. Again. <laughs> what do you mean again? Because I know you, Scott. I know how you push. You made me cry. No, I know, I know this story. I called him when he, I think you were in London, and I was well, like, I, I interrupted for a joke, but coming back to it, like, so Scott, tell your side, and then I want to hear Claire's side because I think it's really important. For no, people. I mean, my, my side was just like, you know, that, that in my memory, that's the only time that I, I really like ever upset her, and um, you know, she came, she came and, and told me about it and I was like well I fucked that up Jesus I, I, I leaned way too hard on that and I, I didn't hear her properly right and I I believe I tried to immediately rectify that situation and that and the decisions that were, were made can you share the if you're allowed to can you share the topic what was it only because I'm sure other people have had this and they might like to hear oh my god I just did that or I'm about to walk into that like was it like Claire was saying no to something you really wanted. She was trying to uh, not necessarily you remember Claire. I, I don't actually remember. It was something to do with um, like a sales incentive you were wanting to use that was going to cause like a bunch of operational fallout. It just wasn't ready. And you had like given the order to the team to just run with it. And right. I think I was like, Oh, you intentionally created this mess for me to clean up, which wasn't the case at all. But that was, um, so I, I felt like, I, I remember feeling like, like personally offended by like the way that it got rolled out. And that's, that's when it came to a head as you, I was like, we talked about this, but 
Um, but then it was, you know, my ability to come to him and be honest and not have to be like a lawyer about it, but be like, Hey, let me level with you as, you know, a peer and a friend and a mentor and all of these different dynamics we have. And, um, and then I think, I think he invited me over to his house with him and his wife for dinner to like, make it up to me. So, <laughs> I recognize my mistake. Here's the one thing that I'm really, really hearing. And I think it's, and I know that it exists. There's a lot of trust between the two of you, right? Like there's like, if you guys were going to go out and create a business, I could easily see the two of you going, you're going to do this. I'm going to do this. Yeah. We're going to sort of come to heads on a couple of things, but we have so much trust in our relationship with each other that we'll figure it out. Right. We'll, we'll go through our own therapy together. Didn't start that way. Right. Like, you know, granted, I think, you know, from day one, from Scott's point of view, there was something there that he recognized to say, all right, this woman knows what, knows what she's doing and she's going to be a rock star, uh, which you have, you know, continually grown into as I've watched, but how do you build that trust between people? Right. I think Claire, you hit on it at the beginning of the conversation, but I really want to go a little deeper, right? Like go, go, go yeah. below the surface. Like what are some of the little things you guys would do to build that relationship so that when these things came up, you could still be passionate about your side. You could push each other to, to the brink, but even if you did, you could still pull back and go, wait a minute, you know, we still love each other. We still care. What, is there anything in your mind that makes you go, oh, here's some of the stuff we did to, to always foster that trust? You know, one thing is that early on, you know, Scott, Scott says that he, you know, saw something in me, but he was one of the first, um, like members of senior leadership in my career that I worked with that started actually like asking me what I thought and treating me in moments like a peer and, um, and not just, you know, the frontline rep that I was. And that was, that, that meant you know, more than anything else, it was, wow, he, he trusts me. He values me. That is such validation. I can trust him. And, um, I, I want more than anything to be valuable to people and to help. And he was one of the first, you know, members of senior leadership to like make me feel like I was doing that and to entrust me with that and use me as a resource. That was huge. For me. Everybody should hear that loud and clear. Like I want to make sure we harp on this for people in the back of the room that, you know, you gain trust by asking questions and mm -hmm. you ask them in a way of not a question that leads to the path you want, but just to hear someone else's opinion, right? Yeah. It doesn't even matter what their opinion is. It's, it's there to build that relationship, not in a manipulative way, but also, and I, again, I know Scott to say, Scott will ask that question because he wants to check himself a little bit. Like sometimes Scott's, it, Scott's very self-aware. And I think that self-awareness builds tremendous credibility as you move up your your career to just say hey what do you think or hey you know how would you handle this or or even say what am i missing those are the kinds of questions i think that help foster that and um, if, if i've heard you correctly i just want to make sure we, we spend a little time on that trust piece absolutely i mean it's trust is all about like authenticity and integrity and um the earlier in a relationship that you can start to build that and and you know really it's about showing respect and, um, and finding value in one another, the earlier you can do that, like Scott and I will have that forever because of those kind of early stage, um, conversations that we had. I like, I have the same, I have the same thing with Scott too. So, um, Scott, what about you? What are the things that you do when you're trying to build, you know, cross departments, you're trying to build this relationship, you're trying to build this trust you know, with ops or even a different department marketing or whatever. 
are there certain things that you've just learned as your own pattern to, to help foster that relationship so that not to manipulate the situation, but then when you do need to go get stuff done, you know that they're willing to hear you out. You know, um, one of the things I, I try to do is, is just get to know people a little bit and, and spend a little bit of time with them. So it's as simple as like eating lunch with them or randomly asking them a question about something. But um, honestly, more than, more than anything, I, I actually try to say to folks, you know, how can I, how can I help? Um, and there's lots of times where I get people from every department in the company who just come to me asking me for advice about something. And, and, and that, that level of openness, I guess, and, and maybe willingness to like help Claire or help Richard solve a particular problem that has nothing to do with me and my, you know, department or my immediate uh, needs. I, I think I tried to position myself as, um, as a resource like that. And then, you know, in theory, that, that, that helps people, um, you know, trust that, that I have their best interests and the company's best interests in mind. And then if and when I do need something, um, you know, there's some goodwill built up there, you know. Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me. I, I mean, I, I tend to trust people, like, pretty quickly. There's this whole, like, oh, trust is, like, earned thing and, and not just given like I don't really uh, subscribe to that too much like you know if I'm if I meet somebody and I'm like well this person's like really good at, at what they do I'm kind of operating on that premise that they're really good at what they do and I'm not sitting here going like oh Richard's got to prove himself to me before I you know trust him to work on this project you know um yeah so I, I, I kind of I kind of give a little more of the trust away sooner I'd expand on that and say, you know, people trust people that are self-aware and, um, you know, a page out of Scott's book that I've taken is like, acknowledge what you're not the expert on and give that credit where it's due elsewhere. And, um, you know, for example, I'm at Homeward now in a completely new industry. Like I'm in real estate. I haven't spent a day in real estate previously um, with, you know, the exception of having real estate agents as customers at Outbound Engine, but it's like so different where I'm, there is so much to learn here for me and I could come in, you know, fake it till I make it and pretend to be the expert here. But instead, I mean, that's not going to work for me. So instead really showing a lot of humility and um, recognizing that there are other experts in the room and just asking those questions and looking to them as a resource, regardless of role, I think is super important. And it, it will both help me learn and also like build me credibility um, and really foster those relationships. Yeah. Well, as we, as we wind down the this, this show here, Claire, uh, Richard and I like to do something a little different on, on the podcast. Um, we like to say, how can we help you? What kind of question do you have for us? What kind of advice do you need right now that we can try to, um, you know, let you walk out of here with, <clears throat> with one little nugget to, to think on and, and something to, uh, you know, take away and put into action. Well, um, you know, we were chatting about this a little bit before the call, but, um, you know, early stage, you know, you're getting past survival phase and now you're getting into growth, um, achieving your kind of day-to-day -day transactions and numbers and, and hitting those things on the board um, and balancing that with, larger strategic initiatives that are actually going to enable your growth. 
um, is it's so hard because one is not a priority over the other. How do you, at this stage, really balance those two things? What what you know philosophies do you use? What techniques do you use to to zoom in and out from the immediate instant gratification of the next deal on the board to thinking about bigger strategy? Yeah, I I I, I went through a, a thirty day cycle on. I'm a big headspace meditation guy, and they have this whole program for thirty days, ten minutes a day on learning how to focus, and it really helped me understand that at a different level. Um, one thing I've done before that was that I, I color code my calendar, red, yellow, green. And um, green for me was always revenue generating, it's meetings, it's those, you know, it's, it's, you know, putting a proposal together, it's doing some research, it's those kinds of things. This event that you and I are doing right now is yellow, right? It's hopefully, it'll turn into some business later. Uh, so color coding my calendar so I can better recognize um, what's happening is, has been helpful to me. And then on the calendar, I can see, oh my God, I've got a day of green, I need to go get this other operational stuff done that's going to take care of the business behind the green. So that's, that's a simple, super easy tactic um, that I have really worked. I've even started to color code my family stuff too. So I can see what's going on on my calendar day in and day out. Um, Cause that's really, really important. So for me, that's the tactical takeaway. And I've also sort of been monitoring myself that I, I learned this from a different woman a long time ago, but like 15 minutes, if I'm feeling scattered, I need to pick, take 15 minutes and focus on this one thing. And you'd be surprised how much stuff you can get done in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's really, really been helpful. And I've actually got to jump from here for a second. So I'm going to stop my video, but I'm going to let you guys wind it down. Well, you know, what I would say, Claire, is you get to this place where um, you feel like you're running around a million miles an hour and have all these different things that you got to be working on. And for a certain period of time, like, you have to, you have to do that and you have to get, get comfortable with that, but it's totally not sustainable. Right. And so I, I think what you have to do is you have to find ways to start offloading and delegating some of the responsibility. Right. And some, some other actions to start looking around and say, well, who's the person that maybe I can, can let hold the candle here to these immediate deals and needs that I need. So I can maybe focus a little more for the next couple of days or even the next couple of hours on some of the, the more strategic stuff, right? Because you just simply can't do everything well. And we all try to do, you know, a hundred different things at the same time. And like, if you do too many, and we all have a breaking point, you do, if you do too many of them, you end up doing none of them really good, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. And and you and in that delegation, and I've I've explained this to Richard uh, many times, and I know I know it resonated with him. But it's like one of the reasons I think people don't delegate stuff is because they don't ex- they, they expect it to come back with their level of like productivity or performance, right? Like if I do this thing, I know I'm going to do it 100, percent right? And so they're afraid to delegate it because they don't think it's going to come back 100. percent You got to get comfortable with it coming back at like 75. percent right? Because that's three quarters of the work. They got you started. It's so much easier to take something and and finish it if somebody's already kind of started it for you. And that's a good coaching and kind of teaching moment for, for, for you with people underneath you, you know, as well. So I think, you know, my advice would be start looking around and figuring out who can help me on any of these little projects. Because even if they, they lighten the load on you by, you know, 
15 minutes, 30 minutes, 1% a day or whatever, um, I think it, it really starts to, to make an impact and it frees, frees you up and you catch your breath a little better. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Well, thanks for being on the, on the show, Claire. And uh, be in touch. Me. It's always good to talk to you and, and good, good to see you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.